Hi everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. Orkney Islands, an archipelago that is home to cutting-edge innovation and the testing ground for next-generation tidal and wave energy machines. It sounds a bit like a green energy utopia and is certainly providing a glimpse into what a renewable energy future could look like. I am joined by Neil Commode, Managing Director of the European Marine Energy Centre, to talk about what he refers to as the experimental bathtub off the coast of Orkney. He describes what makes these islands perfect to foster marine innovation and what technologies have the potential to define the next decade of marine energy. I am Pamela Larg and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Neil, thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to be speaking with you today. And you're coming to us from uh, the Orkney Islands. Uh, And let's be honest, this is more than simply the home of sandstone cliffs and seal colonies. It's actually more of a glimpse into a future energy landscape, which is really exciting. Tell us a little bit more about what it's like to live there. It's great. Uh, honestly, people often come here thinking it's going to be quiet and bucolic and really sort of calm, but actually there's so much going on. Um, and it's really exciting because it's a sort of a, not only is it a special place in terms of the landscape and the, and the beauty of the, of the light plague on the water and, and everything else across the archipelago, which is about 50 islands of which about 15 are inhabited and there's 22,000 people here, biggest towns about 10,000 people. But you just bump into people who are doing interesting, exciting stuff all the time and you feed on that and you then add to it and other things happen as a result. It's just, I find it quite inspiring. That does sound inspiring indeed. And let's be honest, EMEC is doing some exciting and inspiring things as well, which is actually why I wanted to speak to you. Talk to me a little bit about EMEC and your role uh, within the greater mission of EMEC, Neil. Well, where do we start? So EMEC was really came out of a report that was done back in about 2000, which looked at the UK's use of the sea as a whole. And it looked at things like shipbuilding and dredging and cable laying and oil and gas and a variety of things. And sort of at the bottom of one of the pages, there was a little footnote that they effectively said, oh, and by the way, marine energy, getting energy from waves and tides could be quite important in the future. And that was then the trigger because some people blocked that and, and then looked at where the resources are in the UK. And effectively what happens is we get really big waves pounding in from the west because the next thing out to the west of us is Canada. So waves build up all the way across the North Atlantic and then smash themselves into the cliffs. And so we realised that well, people realised that there was energy in the sea to be had. And also we get very strong tides here. And so the idea of trying to bring forward an industry was sort of germinated. 
And people realise the best way to try and bring an in industry forward is have a test centre we, where you can get ideas out of the lab or out of the bathtub and get them to into salt water and learn stuff and learn what to do and find out what works and what doesn't. And then from there, go on to economic success and find ways to newly harvest energy from the seas. So that was really how we started off. And we kicked off initially with wave energy because that was more advanced than anything else at the time. And in 2003, so that's 20 years ago now, just, the wave energy was started and we ended up opening the test centre itself in 2004. And so we, what we've got is cables that run out into the sea into areas where there are strong waves. When I say strong waves, they're pretty big for us, but not necessarily as big as you get in South Africa, but big for us is 18 metres high. That's the highest we've measured in waves on our site. And so we get these big waves and we've got cables that are in the sea that come back to a substation and then connect to our UK national grid. So the energy that's harvested from those waves can flow through the cables and do useful work. So we started off there and we had a couple of companies come along and, and put machines in the water and that built up over time. And as that was going on, we then started to work on the next phase, which is doing the same sort of thing with tidal energy. So an area where there are strong tides and that was an area off an island called Edie, which is in the northern part of the Orkney archipelago. And so we put five cables out there, same sort of thing, cables back into substation, connecting to the national grid. And then people have come along and installed their machines on these two sites over time. And in the 20 years we've been operating, we've now had 35 different devices in the water from 11 different countries, from I think it's 22 different developers. And I'm pleased to say we're having some success and some machines are now starting to move from the stage of being in just one machine working and then replaced with another machine that's a bit better and replaced with another machine that's a bit better to now plans coming forward where there'll be several machines being put in the water at the same time of the same type. And those machines will be working together in concert. And that really is the start of the build-up of this rollout of these machines into more and more areas. So it's it's been an interesting journey over the last 20 years. Well, first of all, congratulations on your anniversary. I think it's very Thank exciting. Also, Neil, I love how you say this is a bathtub, this place of experimenting and, and innovation, but what a bathtub it is. And uh, over the 20 years, would you say that there are any particular milestones that stand out to you? I mean, it, it, the whole thing is just one big success story as far as I'm concerned, but anything that stands out in your mind? I wish it all was all one great success story because there's a number of things that go wrong. And, and frankly, even going wrong is a useful thing to do in testing because to some extent we keep telling people, you know, if you're not breaking stuff, you're not really trying hard enough. You need to take you need to go to the edge where you believe the edge is. And sometimes you're proven that the edge is further away than you thought it was and you're OK. Sometimes you don't get to where you thought the edge was because something bit you. So even when we have problems, those we regard those as useful. But in terms of the real sort of landmark successes, I mean, we've had, it's hard to pick stuff out, but I mean, we were the place where the first ever floating deep water offshore wave machine ever generated into a national grid anywhere in the world. That was with Palamas back in 2005, I think, four or five, I can't remember now. We had a, a tidal turbine that was the first to generate into the UK national grid. That, that was with us, with a company called Open Hydro. We then had people like Orbital come along with their tidal turbine and 
from their energy that they brought in, we made hydrogen because we've extended into different types of energy system work. We had Microsoft turn up and want to put a data center in on our site, which was quite a call getting a call from Microsoft saying, would it be okay if they work with us? We had, yeah, okay. Yeah, fair enough. And and that was great. They did some really super stuff. And that was quite eye-opening as to the capacity of what they were looking to do. And then more recently, one of the big things we've had was a company came along and used some of our electrolytic hydrogen, so our green hydrogen, used it on our on, on one of our uh, land sites to synthesize synthetic gasoline which was then supplied to our the Royal Air Force and they used that for their first ever fully synthetically fueled flight so that was taking green hydrogen combined with carbon monoxide to actually make a fuel and we can now see there's a way to make synthetic fuels using air captured carbon rather than fossil carbon which could give us an opportunity to do aviation, but without most of the climate change impacts. So, you know, that's just a handful of stuff we've done. You know, it's just, it's just mind blowing. And, and, and this is just the start. There's so much more to do. Neil, the way you describe this, it's literally like a green ecosystem. So mm. everything that you need is right there. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and I have to pay absolute tribute to the fact that one of the reasons EMEC was in Orkney was in part the recognition by government that something needed to happen, but there'd also been a lot of work going on over a number of years with a number of people, particularly through Harriet Watt University were here, which had spun out a number of companies and created a thing called the, the Orkney Renewable Energy Forum, which was a gathering of individuals who are interested in renewables. And back in 23 years ago when this was set up that was a bit weird to say the least but now it's mainstream so society was ready to take these new ideas technology was at a a crucial point where it needed somewhere to go government showed the vision to make it all work and these things all sort of coalesced but it's been capacity of people locally to find a way to make this work rather than stand back with their arms folded and going, oh, it'll never work, oh, we don't believe in it. People leaning into this and bringing their intellects to bear that made this better and better. So it's absolutely been something that happened at the right moment. And we have literally put a spark into something that's really just caught. So it's a team play. We are part of that ecosystem. We are not the ecosystem. I love that. It's a team play and we are part of the ecosystem. That is so well said. And I think, you know, in this day and age, it's a pity to see that there are still people who are reluctant to move with the times and actually accept change or, you know, be a little bit more flexible. There's still nimbyism, apparently. Yeah, but as much of it as we'd like, as the populist media like to think. I mean, somebody once sent me an email, it's always stuck in my mind, and it said, uh, at the bottom, it said, well, the people who say this can't be done, please get out of the way of the people who are already doing it. You know, and I, I think that's true. You know, we, we work on science, we prove stuff, and we sometimes we prove stuff works, and sometimes we prove stuff doesn't work. But that's okay, but that, that's the job, prove it. You know, yeah, nice idea, great belief, now show me the maths. And if we then work our way through this and and show that something is working or even a part of something is working, that gives you the kernel of the next piece to to build on it. You know, the the history of of man's development has very much been based on incremental improvements. You know, nobody woke up and went, hey, plane, it works. I think it was something like 200 people 
are recorded as being killed trying to fly before the Wright brothers actually managed to get the whole lift ratio over the top of wings worked out. You know, so it takes time. And now we just happily jump in one of these things and hop across the planet. But we forget that it was an incremental improvement step by step. But you get to see these incremental improvements and be a part of the journey for many of the technologies that are being tested. And I think I want to talk a little bit more about that because obviously I'm not asking you to pick technology winners, but there are obviously some technologies that you are seeing being developed that will potentially have an impact within the next decade in this sector. Can you talk us through what those technologies are? Yeah, sure. So Tidal has made more progress than Wave of late. But wave is coming. It is absolutely coming because we are suddenly doing a lot of big stuff at sea, principally around floating offshore wind or offshore wind as a whole, and of which floating will be a subset. And suddenly there will be big things out there at sea and wave can fit in around that. So I, I think its day is coming. The point is, however, you've got to be ready for that day. You know, the day it arrives. Well, the, the day you were asked to go and contribute, you need to already have got your plans worked out. There's no good going, OK, I'll get back to you in 10 years and give you an answer. So there's a job of work to be done there in bringing way forward. But the big things that really have changed in the time I've been here at EMEC has been it's gone from, hey, we think that there's a way of, to get energy out of that fast moving water over there to we are getting energy out of that fast moving water over there. How do we make it better? So, for example, the probably the most successful one we've had on site to date has been orbital marine power. But we've also got another machine on site from a company called Magellanus from uh, Vigo in Spain. But the orbital machine has moved from it, the first version of it coming like on a boat trailer that was then up to 250 kilowatts, which was like a small vessel. So now the machine they're putting in is 74 metres long, I think. I'm, I, I can't remember the numbers, but it's generating up to two megawatts. and may actually get a 2.2, 2.3 megawatts from two rotors, each of which have got 10 metre long blades on it. So this is a, a big piece of kit. Now, previous version of the machine that they've got in the water at the moment, when that was up on our site 18 months ago, it was generating up to 7% of Orkney's electricity over several weeks. So that's like, you know, that's effectively one day a fortnight these islands were running on tidal power. Brilliant, you know. So so now, now the job now is make that longer, keep it going longer and move it from one day to two days to five days to 14 days a fortnight to, to frankly, we then export power. So that's the sort of journey we're on. And we can see we've certainly moved out of the starting gate past several milestones and now we can see the next milestones laid out in front of us and it's just a case of grind your way through them. So what needs to happen for us to grind our way through these milestones more quickly because obviously the market is developing at quite a pace now and I think in terms of policy and regulation we're starting to see an environment that fosters this growth. What more can be done Neil to to get us where we need to be? So we need to have the level of determination that we've seen in society to deal with other major threats. The the change in the climate doesn't require belief. It is going to happen or it is not going to happen. But, you know, in my view, it is going to happen. You've only got to look at the maths on it. So in which case, we've got to commit as much resources as we can manage to making this happen as quickly as possible. Now, making this happen as quickly as possible, one would normally attack it 
attack any problem on multiple fronts. So what we saw, say, with the vaccine, we didn't just sit back and go, oh, somebody's working on the vaccine. We'll all just sit at home and wait. Yeah, there were multiple attacks on that. And eventually people found successes. First one through the door, then two or three more. And suddenly we're on it, you know, and it causes change. The drawback at the moment is it does feel as though we've got just one horse in the race, you know, and we're just relying on that one horse. And if that one horse stumbles, then you've got to go and find another horse. Whereas what we really ought to do is have this being attacked in multiple locations with the same sorts of technology and a degree of commonality of learning. So to my mind, some good steps have been made, particularly by the UK government recently in providing support for tidal energy, but it's still not of the scale that we have seen of other significant technologies when we chose to commit to them. So I know 20, 30 million pounds committed to tidal energy recently, and I no idea how many billions we are putting into a single nuclear power station nearby. So, you know, we re we really got to get with the program. So I would say it requires a degree of vision. It requires a degree of fairness by government to seek to drive these technologies forward in areas which are often quite economically disadvantaged. But also it needs to be realised that what we're doing is an investment in the future. It's not a cost of doing R&D now. It's an investment in the future. And governments all over the world are are basically tasked with investing on behalf of generations as yet unborn. So that's really what we need to do. We need to wake up and commit to the investment. Very well said. You know, you mentioned future generations and, and that leads me on to my next question. I would be keen to know your thoughts on how you would inspire the next generation. But before I ask that question, just to paint a picture for our listeners, as I'm talking to you and I look at your background and I see uh, the waves and the ocean and the, the green landscape, and it, it's simply beautiful. And after talking with you, I would frankly move to Orkney tomorrow if I had the opportunity because <laughs> it, it sounds lovely. And it's certainly a very forward-thinking, uh, innovative mm. landscape, which is very exciting. But besides that, what would you say to people who are looking to get into the industry and, and perhaps the youth looking at career options? What is exciting about being in the space? Well, what isn't exciting? I mean, it, it, the thing I find fascinating is that we don't yet know how to do all of this. We don't have all of the answers. So if you go to work in, say, petrochemicals or something, you're pretty much doing what people have done before to a large extent. This is a lot of new stuff and it, and it has the opportunity to take on new ideas and assimilate thought. So I, I think everybody who comes near us gets a chance to make a contribution. It's not like, no, that's not how we do it here. We do it like that because we don't have a way here. It's just take it as it comes. So I think it's inspiring and it's very open. And there are two bits in terms of what to do. One is we desperately are going to need more electrically competent people. We are going to need electrical engineers because in our view, the days of fossil fuel are coming to be over. And so everything is probably going to have been electricity at some point in its life that it's either going to be direct electricity for use or synthetic fuels made from electricity or heat pumps that are running on electricity or electric cars. Electricity is going to be in there somewhere. So if you can, for goodness sake, keep your 
what we call STEM, science, technology, engineering, maths options open and learn about stuff. Do not turn your back on the electrical side of things because we are going to need a lot of electrical engineers. Point one. On the other hand, electricity isn't for everybody. And this is going to need people with skills from all over the piece to make it work. Once again, if we go back to aviation as a case in point, the aviation industry is not just about pilots. The aviation industry is about people who can do maintenance, who can do logistics, who can do the accounts, who can do the, the marketing, who can do all of the, the thousand and one skills that are needed to make an airline or an airport work. So I genuinely think it's about looking to see how people think they can make a contribution, read about it, get involved, think about it and ask what you can do, you know, because you have got some insight that could be brought to bear and keep talking to people about what you want to do and, and make it happen. Yeah, you know, I wasn't born doing marine energy. Yeah, you know, I chose to come to this and I found a way in because I believed in it and was willing to move to Orkney. My background is civil engineering, so you know, concrete and structures. It is not is not necessarily be in the marine world but my diving experience as a result of scuba diving led me to the marine world so you know use your experiences offer them to the system and find a way to carve out your niche but think about it and lean in don't just wait for somebody else to do it absolutely great advice my final question neil what is next for emac what are you working on and perhaps future projects that are on the radar so the next things coming along are, are very much about proving the technology works longer than it ha has done. So sort of extending the life of the projects you know, and helping people that were hosting these people do this work. But it's also the grouping of machines. So we're seeing them come along into what we call arrays. So rather than a single machine, it's a small clutch of the machines. Now, some of those are going to be on the surface, some of them are going to be underwater. And there's recently been an announcement by a company called Nova Innovation about bringing a, a an array of machines to put them on the seabed at our site. So that's really exciting. And then the other piece is going to be what we're going to do with the electricity that's landed. And we are becoming increasingly convinced that whilst putting it into the grid is a good thing to do the grid is not necessarily always going to be suitable for doing that and we firmly believe that there's an opportunity to make synthetic fuels from the electricity we're harvesting from the sea and that will happen as a result of taking water and cracking into hydrogen and oxygen and also taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and combining that with the hydrogen to make hydrocarbons but not fossil hydrocarbons. These will be non-fossil hydrocarbons. And we think that's going to be a big part of the renewables picture around the world, because there are some things which we just don't see are going to be easily achieved by using hydrogen or batteries. We think liquid hydrocarbons have a place, but not fossil liquid hydrocarbons. And that is, we think that's going to change the game significantly. Neil, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. You are an absolute delight. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> Thank you, Pamela. And thanks for taking interest. And thanks for people, if you have managed to get to this end of the podcast, uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, keep, keep an eye on EMAC as a whole, and we'd be uh, glad to hear of people's ideas. Thank you again, and thank you to our listeners. Visit nlit.world for more episodes and to sign up to be a community member for more exclusive content. Until next time. Thank you.